Welcome to the Matthias J. Barker Podcast, everybody. Today's guest is a mentor of mine. He basically functions as my therapist, but that would be too limiting a word to give it. He's he's a mentor. He's someone who's really lived a lot of life alongside of me. He functions as a lot of people's therapists, really. His name is Jim McNeish. He is a, a Scotsman who lives in the countryside of Scotland, and, and people from all around the world fly to visit him and seek counsel from him. He's an advisor to all sorts of people. A lot of his clientele are world leaders. Um, a lot of people that you recognize from Hollywood, and many people that he talks to are just people from his local community that he helps along the way as well. Uh, me and some friends uh, that know him, we jokingly refer to him as the wizard because his advice and his questions and his insights, they're, well, they're magic. <laughs> like they're, they're spooky good. He's so insightful and so incredibly helpful. Also, he lives in the countryside of Scotland. And so like the wizard thing feels feels right. I, um, I was just reading the other day, uh, The Tales of King Arthur. And one of the main characters in the origin story of King Arthur is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop's advisor was the wizard Merlin. And then I remembered a conversation that I had with my friend John Mark Comer. And he mentioned something about McNeish being the advisor to a prominent Archbishop in England. And so I thought, I wonder. And so I texted him. And sure enough, (laughs) McNeish is the advisor to the current day Archbishop of Canterbury. And so the interview that you are about to hear is essentially from the current day Merlin, the Enchanter. I'm really thankful for my time with the wizard. When I say that he's functionally been my therapist, I mean it. um, My buddy, like I said, John Mark introduced me to him shortly after uh, my social media explosion. And I was feeling rather anxious at the time because I went from being, well, like really just a therapist kind of right out of school to having like a million followers in the span of a month. And, And I was in a bit of an existential crisis, not because like, like a million followers, like, like in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot of people like on TikTok, like that. I wasn't like, oh crap, I'm famous or anything. It was just the burden of responsibility, like just to say the right thing. I, I had a lot of people listening to me kind of all at once. And I just knew that my words held a lot of weight and that a lot of people were listening. So it just, it just felt like more pressure than I've had before. Um, like my counseling wait list went from having like four people on it to over 3000 people in line to see me um, within weeks. And so I just, I was feeling the burden of all that and it was quickly rising. And, and I just, so I was I was feeling nervous and feeling unsettled. Again, that's a very minuscule amount of public attention, but enough to make me anxious. And so John Mark, being a, a wise pastor, I think he just knew that I needed a visit from the wizard Merlin. And so um, I was certainly better for it. That's that's for sure. So the interview that you're about to listen to is with the wizard Jim McNeish. And this interview is us remembering the circumstances of the time that we met um, and just some of the initial lessons and insights that he walked me through. He walks through some of his models and some of his thinking um, that he doesn't just apply to my circumstances, but really um, for all of his clients and anyone that he advises or coaches or mentors. And And I would encourage you, um, you know, maybe right now, maybe at the end of the interview to check out his uh, website, niche.co, that's N-E-I-S-H dot co, to see his library of lectures and public work. It's really just a wealth of wisdom um, highly suggest that you check that out after the interview. Jim McNeish, everybody. All right, well, let's jump in, Jim. I'm excited just to chat. I'm excited to talk. I asked you to come on, Jim, just because you're someone who's who's been just such a tremendous um, impact on me. And you've been someone who's helped me wade through really this just recent shift in my life. I think you and I first got acquainted through, um, I, I blew up on TikTok and had suddenly, you know, several 
thousands, several million people listening to what I had to say, and that gave me a bit of an existential crisis and just wanting to make sure that I wasn't saying something wrong or like um, that I was navigating just kind of the thrust into the public eye wisely. And and I remember we hopped on our first phone call and I was a bit of terror and shock. I'm just like, I don't know really what this is. I don't know what's going to happen next. And yeah. I was feeling a pretty profound amount of anxiety. And and maybe one of the reasons I was especially excited to talk to you was because I've talked to several therapists about it. And, and, and I felt like I needed to talk to someone who didn't read all the same books that I did. And Sure. Um, that wasn't going to approach kind of this new season of life with, uh, from the same angle. Like I wanted to think through it in a different way. And, and I guess, uh, you, I mean, what was funny too, is like you got straight to the heart of the matter within like five minutes. Like I think I was well into tears <laughs> within like five minutes of us talking because, uh, you, I think you just saw immediately the stress and the, uh, the internal conflict that I was in and sure. then, um, and I you approached it. I think what I mainly saw was just a strong desire in you to do the right thing and to say the right things. Hmm. You know, you were just, and when you're up against it with that maelstrom of kind of millions of people listening, um, anything you say is going to have a spectrum of approval from yeah. the audience. And, and I saw you with a strong desire to, how do I do the best for all of them? Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it felt that way. I think. I think there's a lot of things going on at that beginning season of, I don't know, there, there, was, there was a large part of me that was really excited that all of it was happening, I guess. And then yeah. um, growing up in, in kind of the church culture that I was accustomed to, it's, it has a very high awareness of pride and of vanity and a high value for humility. And so there was this immediate conflict, I, I guess, of a part of me that was really excited to, to be in the spotlight a bit and get to share my ideas with people. And, and then there was another part of me that was like, Oh, this is, you shouldn't be basking in it and, and enjoying it this much. Like <laughs> you should be a, yeah. a bit, a little uh, less enthusiastic at each. I don't know. There was, there's this part of me that felt like I wasn't being humble enough with it. And then a part of me that was terrified of wanting to say the right thing, like you're saying, but then another part of me that felt like really deeply connected to um, what I was saying and and knew that these 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 are things that I'm that I'm making videos about that changed my life it's not just like I'm just trying to throw out advice uh, that's stale or just you know pontifications that are kind of detached or or just uh, cerebral like I was actually trying to say something with that was attached to my own soul and yeah. and uh, all all of that was like swarming I guess in my own mind and of an internal critic a part of me that didn't think that I was doing it well enough, that I was feeling the right things, that I was reacting the right way. A part of me that was really excited and enthusiastic, that wanted to say more, that had lots of ideas of um, ways of wanting to help people and, and just felt a lot of meaning attached to it. And I felt like I was kind of in the middle of the screaming match between those parts. And yeah, and you seemed to see that, you know. I don't know, what was your impression of that first time of us meeting in that crisis that I was in? Yeah, I, I guess I saw parts of you that were in conflict mm -hmm. and um, each of them trying to do a really good thing. You know, there was a part of you that wanted to succeed and have a significant voice and um, mm -hmm. do well for your family and do well for um, your potential and, 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 you know, achieve all that. 
And then there was another part of you that saw a danger in that, which is if that part of you got to run the show, then maybe it could lead you across some boundary pushing and uh, maybe even relinquish some of the things you held dear from your faith and from your time kind of growing up in that way. Um, and then there's another part of you that seemed wanted just to simplify it, to say, well, as long as I'm doing the right thing and I'm saying the best that I can, surely it's okay, surely I'm fine just moving ahead, yeah. whilst knowing that actually, no, you, you know, in a public with a public voice like you have, you're going to get flack. And so I think you were heading into it with at any one time, any of these voices running the show and not particularly trusting the other voices inside of you to contribute, but rather they would try and slow you down. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've coached many people in positions of power and influence. That's that's actually your expertise. <laughs> so I, I doubt that I'm the first person to come with you with such internal conflict, but yeah. being thrown into a place of a lot of attention and then being very suspicious of my own motivations and all the different reactions that I was having and trying to organize it all. How do you conceptualize that even from a more um, general stance? Because this is this is common for you. What, what goes through your mind? Yeah. Well, there was a couple of models came up for me when you were talking as a, a sort of reference point. Yeah. And uh, one of them would be the um, the character styles that comes out of a study called bioenergetics. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, this really was the brainchild of Wilhelm Reich and, and pulled together laterally by a man called Alexander Lowen. And what he, they saw was five discrete personality structures that people have in terms of their thinking that come out of the five stages of child development. Mm. And I saw particularly three of them that were operating inside of you. Um, it was my kind of assessment, my analysis, which I checked out with you. Yeah. And I saw one which would be called the type five character structure, which is all about uh, progress and movement forward and advancement and has a big strong value around fairness and justice and likes things to work out and is also highly relational mm -hmm. um kind of is desperate to get his heart away but only to something which is really excellent you know and so mm -hmm. i saw that in you that there was a strong desire to if i'm going to go for it i want to go for it 100 percent. and then there's another part of you i guess the second most prevalent part which i would call the type two which was highly sensitive, um, highly sensitive to other people's opinions, but also the part of you that would make you an absolutely excellent uh, therapist because your compassion that comes from it, the ability to understand others, the ability to articulate things which are nebulous for other people, but you can put them into words. That's all the gifting that comes with that lovely type two personality, it just is really sensitive, particularly to criticism or even just detecting hostility in somebody else can, can put your back up, you know. Mm. And then the type three part of you, the kind of the least prevalent part of you, I would say, but certainly a part that's there and actually a part that has to be there, I think, for you to achieve what's possible for you. Mm. And um you know, occasionally has the rather unattractive name of the psychopathological part, um, the psychopath, um, but also can, in other models, be called the superhero or the tough and generous, you know, those parts. 
And those are the, that's a part that's essentially in every CEO and every chair and every president and prime minister. And it's a, a part that just takes their place in the hierarchy at the top and is a powerful part. And he is strategic and he's also very generous um, and charismatic and can hold large crowds. But he's terrified of his reputational loss um, because it's built on that. And so if you kind of take like, I heard sort of 70% of that first one, the, the type five, we would call it, um, uh, the, and, and maybe about 20% of the type two. And then there's this 10% of the type three, which I thought he has not integrated, that he's not comfortable with that part of him. Mm-hmm. And, and so therefore it's almost like an invisible rudder that's steering him. And he doesn't like being driven along by another part of him, which isn't necessarily going to take responsibility for the flak. And so that's really was the first model really I had up and running when I was listening to you speak. Oh, yeah. And, and it's so, um, that resonates so deeply for me that all those parts were in conflict. Specifically, I think you, you nailed it where the, the type three was in conflict with, uh, especially maybe the part two. And be curious to how you characterize that. But there is this, this part of me, um, you know, that just really cares and just wants to help people and just wants yeah. to just help the world heal. And that's the only priority. That's the number one priority. That doesn't want any sort of vainglory, doesn't want any attention, doesn't care about the money, doesn't care about um, the follower count. Like that is just the sole motive structure of that part of me is just I just want to help and there is yeah. there's like this 10% of me is like well it'd be nice to pay off your student loans and <laughs> <laughs> like, you know it's like or that um that knows if I strategically say this or that that it's going to get more views or it's it's going to hit in a different way and and yeah. isn't from that just warm place but is from a very strategic you know kind of yeah. almost like emotionally withdrawn place and that's mm-hmm. so nauseating for me that that's in there like that that's that was really my reaction was just disgust and i'm like why is that there because like i blew up into the public eye and of course like these dominant parts of me are like okay we're going to do some good in the world we get it we get an opportunity to share these meaningful things and then there's that subtle voice in the back that's like ah it feels good to be important huh yeah you know yeah and and the thing that you did really well though especially you know how old are you now 14 Um, 30, 30, you know, it's like, at such a young age to be integrating the type three part of you. It's a huge achievement. You know, Mm. I'm working with senior executives who are still wrestling those parts of themselves in their forties. And so the very act of bringing it into the light, the very act of being prepared to look at it is redemptive in its nature. It's, it's a really useful, powerful thing to do because that that you can name, you can transcend, you can get above. And when you can actually name it and see it and it's no longer an invisible rudder, but it's kind of like, hey, there is a part of me that would quite like to be a big shot. And, you know, I wonder if he's all evil. I wonder if actually there's destiny. I wonder if I could do a large amount of good with that suddenly to get curious about the fact that it might not all be all pathological it might not even be pathological it might be that when you created it as a coping strategy as a child um it was a very useful coping strategy and as an adult now you get a choice about how you wield it and how you use those parts of you for good or ill 
that that's got nothing at all to do with what personality you've landed with that's your character yeah, that yeah, is your choices yeah. of where you go to with your life and these are just ways of expressing it and i think that integrating it early is great if you don't integrate it the difficulty with the type three personality is it can quite quickly become something known as the dark tetrad. And the dark tetrad is um, four particular shadow facets of that character, which you'll be familiar with in the shape mm. of narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy, and sadism. Mm. And so those can start to leak. And it, and it also doesn't mean to say you're off the scale with it. We're not talking about character disorder. We're just talking about character style. Right. These aren't diagnoses. You know? These are character styles and personality dimensions. Yeah. Exactly. They're not, they're not disorders. These are like well within the range of normal shadowy negative behavior that any normal functioning good human being would exercise. Yeah. You know, but these ones would show up in these ways. And so you might be a little bit cruel here, or you might be a little bit kind of um, too focused on self at this point, or you might be socially destructive, or you could be, you know, um, manipulative. Those are the things that will come in and you'll know that they're part of you and you'll also know that they are potentials within you. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you touch in the greatness side of it, you're reminded that those are there. And rather than just going ahead anyway and being reminded that they're there, but trusting your character to help you navigate um, because of background and because of your conviction and your values, it was maybe I need to stamp this out. Maybe I need to make it all wrong. And the idea is not. The idea is like get it into the light, study it, look at it, look at all the stuff around it, and then find a really positive way of contributing it to the world. Oh, absolutely. Man, and that that is such a huge shift that I've not just seen from me, but even the people I've worked with, essentially from from learning and kind of stepping into that more personally with you and our work together was was uh, instead of siphoning off these whole domains of my personality that are just bad, you know, or that are just, you know, aggressive or like I think aggression and even, you know, like because I've, I've noticed even in my own heart, like the, the reality is because I'm so empathetic and because I'm so great at being able to encapsulate people's emotions, it, it leads me to being able to manipulate people very easily if I want to. And that those, those moments where I've indulged that have, have really frightened me. Like, like a little like kind of light example is if I'm hanging out with a bunch of friends, let's say like at a poker night or something, um, I can usually win and not even because I'm like good at reading their facial expressions or something, but I just know how to get them riled up and distracted so they're not paying attention to the cards. <laughs> like, because yeah, yeah. I know their insecurities. Sure. I know all of I know all of their insecurities. I mean, not no, but I have I have a good idea. I have a good idea yeah. of their insecurities. You know, I have a good idea of what they're not comfortable with and what, what how they want to be seen. I know where they're fragile in their ego, and I know how to play with it right on the line of not moving over into them fully getting insulted, but just hazing just enough to get their heartbeat going a little bit, their blood pressure spikes just a little, their face turns just a little red and everyone else at the table is laughing and they're just thrown off enough to where they make a bad call or they call me on like on a bluff because they want to like assert that ego and I know how to play that. And, yeah. uh, and it's 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 kind of funny because I'll I'll win just because I essentially like provoke the trauma of my friends <laughs> in poker <laughs> to 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 win a match. But I'll, I'll notice that and I'll hate it about me. I'm like, why did I do that? Like, 
it's fair game in poker. If you're sitting down already and the agreement <laughs> is we're going to have a game in poker to see who can get money off each other by bluffing. Uh, you know, like it's yeah. fair game. And if you choose to sit down with somebody who's very successful at therapy, then yeah. that's their call. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. like that's fair game. Yeah. The, bit yeah. To, the, the, the thing you watch is when it's relationships that you're intimate with or you're, you really want a sustained thing. And, and I bet you some of these people are your friends and in your friendship, you would never dream of being quite so manipulative. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in, in this thing, it's fair game. Or if you're talking to somebody who is going through a particular very difficult phase and you detect that potentially they might be moving to being a threat to themselves, it's fair game to start to use influencing tactics, shall we say, to start to move them back onto a track where that isn't something that's crossing their mind. Like these are, yeah. if we put the shade on them, they become negative. If we put the light on them, they become positive. That's where character comes in. And that's mm. where you decide your values. These are just collections of personality traits that you can exercise, coping strategies, and not one of those character styles comes without gifts and talents and ability to really handle sometimes what can be a hostile world. Mm. So um, I think I, I think as long as you don't start to employ that kind of harsh, judgmental, fundamentalist, religious perspective on yourself and add that to your cadre of voices in your head, then you've got a really strong chance of not having these things get repressed and then show yeah. more shadowy. Yeah, it, that's precisely it, is, is I would notice those tendencies or instincts to be able to, on something as innocuous as just like a poker game, just poking at my buddy's ego because I know that'll ruffle him up. And I know how to uniquely with each person. And then what I would do normally is I'd notice that impulse and then be like, that is categorically wrong and and manipulative, I need to shut that entire domain of my awareness off because that's something bad in me. And yeah. and then um, what I've what I've noticed even in the past, like I would, I would think about this because, for example, like I used to be a worship leader at church. Like I, I remember leading songs and and I knew how to actually do this with um, with a whole crowd. I remember being fifteen and knowing how to do this. Like if I if I organized the music and 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 even just the the arrangement of the songs and played certain chords and created the lighting in just a certain way that I knew, I knew how to bring people into a deeply emotional state. And, and I was really suspicious of that awareness in me because I was doing it for all the right reasons of wanting people to connect with God or wanting people to feel like they have an emotionally safe place to kind of express the, the pain or the struggles that they're having and doing that within music and doing that within your community or your church is just a really safe place to be able to kind of access those deep emotional parts. But then I was like, am I doing something wrong by strategically creating a place that is meant to evoke emotion? Like, is that, is that wrong of me to, to do that? And I would never cross the line into deceit. Like I'm never, I'm never deceiving somebody or, or, or building a mirage, you know, but it's that that's been a domain of my personality, that awareness of how to shift the emotion of other people is yes. something that I was, I was so terrified of and categorically like suspicious of that I would repress it. And just like you said, it would come out in moments when I didn't really know, like when I'm flustered, when I'm angry, when I feel my reputation being kind of tarnished. Like I remember, you know, a time where I had someone like really, really 
come after me. And it was, it was a friend who was like really, really accusational. And what flooded into my mind are all these ways that, that I know that I could fight this argument and win and, and point this all right back at, at them. And, and I was like, well, no, I shouldn't do that. Like that would, that would be really, because uh, in that moment, I remember being like, I, I can recover from this. This is okay. Like we're in a conflict and, but, but I know that that would actually really probably hurt him and, and cause some emotional damage if I said those things like, man, why does it even occur to me to say those things? And, yeah. and if I'm not careful, there, there would be like these slips and these moments when I would turn that highly strategic part of me on and it, and it wouldn't be in line with my values. But something that we've been really working on together is like actually noticing the three dimensionality to like that part three in me. And, you yeah. know, and, and I think all of us, we call it by different names. Everyone means something a little bit different when they say something like narcissism or like um, psychopathology yes. or, you know, we, maybe what we mean here is something like your ambition and kind of almost like, for me, it's experienced as this, this awareness that is that that knows it's it's a it's a social awareness that feels actually a bit detached from the emotion and it feels very cerebral for me and and notices patterns and then likes to run experiments on if I did this then what would happen there and and keeping track of those patterns with different people and then just kind of building maps of people and so that's what makes me a very compelling therapist is because I I have that social awareness and can read but then it it can also like you're saying actually be a a, a capacity that would be deeply harmful if not tied to a very deep rooted character or, or a value set that's, that's meant to promote flourishing. And, and I think something that's been a guiding light um, really since I was a kid was, was honesty. I'm like, I never want to do anything deceitful. I never want, even when I was working in sales, like I was a really great salesman. I was, um, I worked at guitar center. I was like the number one salesman at that whole branch. And, and I was 19 and, <laughs> and, and uh, was always hitting my sales numbers. I always was like, I, I never want to do, I never want to sell someone a product that actually is bad and I can just convince them that it's good or I, I never want to upsell someone just because it, I know that it would make me more profit and get my numbers up if I didn't actually believe that it was good for them. And so there was a guiding light in that moment of like, I, I'm only going to try to sell someone a guitar if I actually think it's what they want and would be good for them. And I'm never going to try to upsell just for the sake of an upsell. I'm going to try to make sure that's yeah. rooted in a deep belief that that's what would be good for him. And what I found is that's actually a far more adaptive strategy because then that builds rapport and trust because then they feel like they can come to you. And they, I was like their token guitar guy or their token pedal guy, because they knew that I wasn't being slimy or, or they knew I wasn't being, you know, sneaky, like that. I was, yeah. I was out for their best interest. And, and I think there's a trust there. And that's, I think the, the charisma behind this type three is it, it's not so much that you need to, that people are, are trying to be where like, oh, okay, is this guy really strategic or is this guy trying to get a read on me or psycho psychoanalyze me? It's they want to feel like, is he doing that for my best interest? Is he doing that because he cares about me? Like, is he doing it for me? Like with me um, while respecting my consent, while respecting my boundaries, while, you know, with respect, really, that, that that's a key feature there. Yeah. Or is he doing it behind my back and in a way to leverage me to, for his own nefarious ends, you know, and... And that's the charisma. The charisma is the type three can notice things and dimensions of a scenario or reality that that aren't obvious to everybody. And it's it's kind of electric. It's kind of romantic to get to follow somebody who is on the front so perceptive. And that's not to overinflate my perceptiveness. I'm not trying to. I'm not saying anything about a brag there. I, I of course I have blind spots and I get that wrong all the time. But but that's that's how I've conceptualized it. It's like okay, this ambition, this this capacity to be strategic 
is something that needs to be grounded in honesty, grounded in a respect of the other person, grounded in a desire to actually promote the best for for other people, and is not is not uh, focused on merely my own benefit. Yeah, and then is something that that I can actually turn on and leverage because there's there's a certain magic about it that when people feel like there's trust, when people feel like oh he's he's uh, he's here with me in this. Then, then, it, then it's actually a rapport builder. It's a trust. It people feel safe. I guess is what I'm saying. It's, it's actually rather than it being something that creates suspicion, it's something that builds safety. Um, yeah. And that's the dimension of this cerebral, ambitious social awareness that sometimes we we fear is a product of our own narcissism, or um, we're really quick to to moralize in ourselves. That that's how I've come to think about it. How do you think about it? I guess I like it in the sense of I love the imperfection in um, in my motivation. When I think about my motivation for anything, for anything I do or say, there's usually three or four commitments behind it. One of them could be quite negative, two of them could be phenomenally altruistic, and one of them fairly neutral. You know, if I want to look at it really carefully in any conversation I have, there's probably a bit of me that's trying to look good. There's probably a bit of me that's really trying to care for the other person. There's probably another bit that's really striving towards honest and accurate psychology when I'm speaking. You know, there's a number of different ones all coming at it. And there's this notion that, you know, um, energy flows where the focus goes, you know, and whatever you start to attend to, you make that bigger. And that's why... I guess in doing some mentoring with you, I was trying to replace the voice inside of your head that was asking, is it wrong for me to do this? Is this a bad thing? Into why am I doing this? What's the motivation behind it? Is it useful? Hmm. You know, those voices are kinder and actually lead to a much more fruitful internal dialogue in terms of where you're going. And so increasingly I'm looking at how am I looking at myself? And all these tools, and you're so right to say that the idea of psychopathology, is it even a thing? You know, so my favorite um, psychiatrist and psychiatric writer is a Scotsman called R.D. Lang. Mm -hmm. And R.D. Lang had no truck with any of it. He really didn't like the ideas of schizophrenia or oral or psychopathology or masochism or rigid. He's like, really? It's like they're really maybe useful gateways to begin a conversation but once you're in dealing with a human being you're dealing with a very unique construct inside of someone that really does not submit to that kind of blocky analysis mm. and and i think anybody who's got any experience in therapy like yourself will also know that there's for as many people as there are in the world that's how many personalities there are and so I think these blocks can be quite hateful if we use them too much to castigate ourselves. But if we use them just to open a gateway and a door, knowing that the voice at the other side of it will be compassionate and kind and developmental with us, mm. then actually it can open up into a whole bunch of new thinking. Um, Alan Watt said, um, perception without love is a sin. Oh. And... Um, I love the idea of how do you perceive yourself? And if you think you're doing the world a favor by perceiving of yourself harshly or judging these different parts harshly, you're not. You're actually corrupting what's really going on inside of you. But to perceive it with curiosity and compassion and a desire to understand and open up, 
actually allows these parts to flourish into their best expression and in the light and actually come out as charismatic and generous and strategic mm -hmm. and, and big picture. So I guess that's what goes on inside of me when I'm thinking about it. Oh, so good. Oh, I love that. You know, that's that's a dimension that I feel like I'm learning more about too, is like the um that it's not just that I'm trying to function out of one motivation, but the reality that I probably have like four or five motivations all happening simultaneously. Yeah. That's so hard because because uh, I feel that too. Yeah, it's like I want I want to listen to my partner, but I also want to win the argument. You know, <laughs> like I, I uh, and I want to be compassionate and and empathetic, but I also want my thing. Like there's a uh, I want to learn, and I don't want to get bowled over. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's um when you can be accepting towards the multiple motivations and almost let them negotiate with each other. And that's how I started to think about it is yeah. It was when I noticed that clash in motivations. I'm doing something and and two parts of me are doing it for different reasons that are not congruent. You yeah. know, it's is can there be a negotiation? And um I don't know, how do you how do you think through that when you notice those clashes and motivations? What's what's your protocol for internally investigating I that, think that would, through it? That would go into the second model that I would have been using on this, which would be subpersonalities. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um I am um, I, I won't go into all my own at the moment. I I, I have a, a library which has a video on it about subpersonalities where I confess yeah. all my subpersonalities and how they bicker. You made so um, much sense after I saw that. That was so great. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I love for people who don't know. Yeah, I've, I think I, I talk about it at the beginning in your intro and then I'll make sure to close on it. But that library is a treasure trove. Um, it's essentially your life's work, hours and hours and hours of, of you giving these really kind of like short, concise, well-organized lectures um, on various right. topics that I have no joke. I think you have more just a bigger wealth of information in there than like a master's degree in psychology. I really actually believe that. I actually believe that one would be better to get your, what is it, like 20, 20 bucks a month or something? Someone, 25 pound a month, yeah. 25, yeah. 25 bucks a month. One would be better spending 25 bucks a month getting that library than spending 50,000 on, on some master's degree. That's just oh, my personal you. opinion. Anyway, okay, that's enough of me pumping you up. So finish your thought. I, I love it. It's so good. That subpersonality yeah, well, course. Let me, let me, in a very British way, drag myself back down again because yeah, there, are certainly, <laughs> uh, there are certainly some undeveloped subpersonalities in there. And I, uh, yeah, I reckon yeah. it, it, there's about seven or eight, you know, that kind of operate at any given time. And so as I've got to know these different parts of me, I kind of see who's running the show. Hmm. You know? So what do you mean? So, different parts of your personality? Like, do you mean like your anger or your happiness? Or do you mean something more complex than that? More complex, a little bit more of a complex. So that it's it's like a, a personality structure that somehow split off to provide some kind of defense when I needed it. And it may well have been very useful back then, but at my age, perhaps less so, or some of them are, are very good and, and very developed. And so... I can see me like fussing around, like only really about two or three years ago, a bit embarrassed to admit it, but I, I noticed that as soon as I start working really hard on something where there's a number of us involved, I start to become like the more interested I become in the topic, the more resentful I'm also becoming on the lack of effort being made by other people involved in the project. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
without that even being useful as a click. And I, I got that my mother did that. I remember like we did not want to be in the house on a rainy Saturday because my mother at some point would come after us for something because she was, and maybe we were just laughing or giggling or mucking around or whatever it was, but she found some reason to just come and let us have it. Hmm. And um, I realized that's me, you know, that, and, and I, you know, if I was going to give it a name, it would be Martha. You know, it's like that character that complains that they're doing all the work. Mm. And um, and so I've started to notice that now and I've started to realize, actually, what does that part of me need? Mm. What is it they're asking for and presenting? And part of it is they, they would just like to engage other people in what they've got really interested in. It's the extrovert part of me. And there are not, there are not many of those in me. I'm, I'm pretty introvert. But this one is. Yeah. Yeah. This one's yeah. like, where's everybody else when I'm doing all this stuff? And it's like goofing off doing their own thing. And, I, you know, I really want to connect. And so I've started to realize that if I allow that part to just begin to form a voice and say, and I ask, what is it you want? They normally want me to stop doing the hard work in those pieces and just connect with people. Mm. I was like, right, okay, got you. So that's only two or three years. Like up until then, it would be much more dysfunctional complaint and huffiness and and then also masochism, really good mm. kind of, no, I'll do it. No, no, let me do it. I'm better doing it. I'm quicker. You know, I'll just get it done. Now you guys go off, have a lovely time, do all that stuff. I'll just mm. stay here and do the work, you know, and uh, it would show up and everybody would go along with it, but they would feel the sting of a little shadow passive aggressive punishment coming out there mm-hmm. um but I, now i've learned that bit. And, and what i've realized is as i've done that and i've began to develop i'm much much more able to concentrate for longer on more complex pieces of work and writing because this part doesn't come sweeping in with its negative undeveloped part so it, it, it allows for that and just the caricaturing of it and giving it a name and, and giving it a bit of love and those things has allowed it to to really develop yeah i i remember really i think first learning about this from you because anyone who's familiar with my podcast or my work knows that i've been diving you know headlong into something called internal family systems and yeah. and a lot of parts work and i, I do a lot with lead trainer of IFS, Frank Anderson. We've we've been doing a lot of work together, but really my first exposure to this idea was through you and specifically John Rowan and, and his work of subpersonalities yeah. and and which really approaches this whole genre of parts work from a very different angle than IFS. And um what's so fascinating about that piece and why I found it so compelling really early on was I I do. I have multiple parts of me that disagree with each other and they have different opinions on things and they approach things in different ways. And when they show up, they feel different patterns of emotion. And, and I used to think I was just like really emotionally unstable and nuts. And maybe I am like, maybe, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, uh, but it made a lot more sense. I'm like, Oh, certain environments and settings and triggers bring out different parts of me that to address the problem. And I can actually build a trusting relationship with each of these parts. And like so you're saying, like you have these extroverted social parts, you have very to the points, like very directed kind of work focused parts. You have parts that are fussy and kind of get, you know, masochistic. You have parts that are so warm. Like I think the part that I interact with you very frequently is almost like a warm fatherly part where just you just want to encourage and see the best in me. And you help me kind of weed through the fog and all of the complicated 
decisions that I don't know how to make and, and just remind me who I am. And that's a part that I feel so safe with. And so like such kinship with as, as I continue to get to know all the other parts. And, um, I'm sure if we spent like a, a week together traveling, I get to encounter the fussy part. That's mad that I am not cleaning up after myself enough and <laughs> or something like that. Oh, oh, that one's mild compared to some of the other bad ones. Um, yeah, there's a few more than that, Claude. but do, do you know, there's, there's two things that's got me thinking about in terms of what am I interested in about this subject now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's two bits of it. One is never to ever try and arrive. You know, mm. I think keeping the fact that there's two or three undeveloped and kind of imperfect parts of you that can at any point grab the steering wheel and, and cause chaos, the very knowledge that that's in me makes it easier for me to apologize. Oh, yeah. It makes it easier for me to build, like where there's been disagreement, I can build a bridge again because I can take actual responsibility for it rather than pretending to be responsible for it for the sake of forming a peaceful bond again. It means I can genuinely say, do you know what, I can see what might have caused that and, and I apologise from a, a deeper space. And so I find it can overcome my pride just holding on to the knowledge that two or three of these are definitely works in, in, in progress. And then the second bit that's increasingly got me interested in, because we used to do a constellation on this, which is we would map it out with people's sub-personalities and people representing yeah. them, like Bert Hillinger's work, and, and we, would, we would play around with them. And I used to think there was something here for me to notice, and I wasn't noticing it, I wasn't noticing it, and then one day it clicked. And it's um, a, a, a comment by Virginia Satir who says, we much more relate to relationships than we do to individuals mm. that that growing up we hit that stage five of child development where a we've got much more ability to hold these kind of complex attachment feelings and b we're starting to notice a family dynamic with somebody else in the family we're starting to right. want in on the intimate relationship with our parents yeah. And, and we'd like in on that. And so we attempt to do that. And we've got to kind of somehow learn actually, you don't get in there. And the parents defend it, but they do it gently and, and they work with us on it. And Virginia Satir says, we relate to relationships. And I'm thinking, I wonder if our mood, our internal state, our peace of mind is much more affected by how two of our sub personalities are getting on than by anything else. And so therefore, the more that we can identify, and some days when you've just got that malaise, or you're in a bad mood, or you're feeling threatened, which of the two subs are not getting on, or mm. the, the, the schism between them has been exposed by a particular circumstance, and I need to do the work there. And I've found, I'm only just beginning to experiment with this, but I'm finding it incredibly fruitful as a way of self-possessing and actually owning my emotion and choosing how I want to show up. Again, I don't ever want to make that perfect. I don't want to arrive because of the first reason that I said, but um, I'm finding that I'm getting increasingly interesting enlightenment the more I kind of work on that. Brilliant. I mean, the, the word for that in IFS is a polarity. It's the... yeah. It's the two different poles. There's parts that are operating at two different poles of whatever domain and topic, and and they're fighting for this steering wheel. And sometimes those in IFS they conceptualize that as sometimes it's two soothing parts. You want to soothe an overwhelming emotion in different ways, 
Um, one part of you wants, wants wow. to drink, you know, one part you wants to, you know, find some solace in a close relationship. The other part wants the substance. And so you're in this conflict of, do I kind of retreat and become a recluse and have another bottle of wine, you know, or do I call a friend and just kind of cry in the arms of someone that I care about? But that includes vulnerability, which increases the emotional distress, at least short term. What do I do? So there's that internal conflict, that polarity of how to soothe. There's the polarities of how to manage. That's the other yeah. conceptualization there of like, okay, do I micromanage this? Do I stay up late ruminating about what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it? Do I get in those internal arguments in my head? You know, those moments like where you're, 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 you're mapping out all of your really good, sharp comebacks, like anticipating how they're going to say, and then what you'd say to stomp on them. And are you, are you going to go into that? Or are you going to try to relax? Are you going to try to calm down? You know that you need your sleep. Okay, try to relax and, and fall asleep. So there's the polarity of the part that knows you need to sleep, the part that wants to prepare and feel prepared, even though that's a losing game. It's yeah. um, the polarities. I, yeah. I love your apl application to that, just to every sour mood, or even in moments when there's relational conflict or a place where I need to grow, looking yeah. for that internal polarity. What What is the disagreement the the schism between those internal parts that's fascinating i love that but you can see even as we're talking like you know i i have a coaching practice and you've had therapy practice and a, and a and a public voice at the moment um how easy it would be for people who would observe us to want to create a singular identity for us matthias is this jim is that and it's usually something idealized, something that, you know, it's pretty good. Matthias is this gentle, loving, caring guy that has this wonderful empathy with three million people. You know, it's kind of like, probably not, you know, but, um, you know, we have all of that up there as the ideal. And and the type three in both of us, because I also have that type three personality. Yeah, yeah. The type three in both of us would want to attach to that idealized ego image mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and say, yes, yes, I want to promote that. And that seems to be the one that's getting the, the pull. And I wonder how much more time we should spend gently introducing the other facets of our personality so that we have much more places to go to in any conversation and in any public communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder that too. This would be good to explore because I'm not convinced. I wonder because I have dimensions of my personality that that don't enter into kind of my public persona. Yeah. Um, like I, I I did a trauma Q&A the other day and it was tremendous. We had like 40,000 people, you know, um, come through that, that Q&A, which was just wild. It was so fun. And a question I actually got a lot, like I saw it show up several times on the chat and then um, people submitted this question beforehand. It's like, do you ever get angry? And which I actually get as a pretty consistent question because I come off really warm and, and inviting and empathetic and gentle. And, and so they're like, I wonder if he ever experiences like the chaotic anger and aggression that I feel. And I told a story on the trauma um, Q&A about um, a scuff I got into, not, not like a full-on fight, but a, well, almost a yelling match that I got into at a concert recently where someone pushed over my eight month pregnant wife and yeah. didn't push her all the way over, but, but shoved her really hard. And, and we were trying to find a seat and, and setting up in the grass to watch this concert. And a guy got really territorial over his spot and his blanket and shoved <laughs> Paige. And, oh man, I just, I just like 
got right up in his face and just like got really stern and confrontational all at once. And, and, uh, and then there was, it was funny cause there was this thought, I'm like, Oh, I wonder if, wonder if anyone here recognizes me and what they're going to think of the gentle therapist, you know, being all confrontational, of course, for all reasons that I, I think are completely reasonable and good and fine. If you should defend, you know, your vulnerable spouse, if, if, um, yeah. a guy's being rude. Um, but I was just thinking, I'm like, I don't even know how to integ- integrate that aggression or that, that anger that, um, in a space like this, or I don't know, I, is, is it okay that, that, um, that what people need from me in this space is a, is a safe place to, ex- you know, to approach those personal places and their emotional wounds and find healing from their trauma? And, and are there sub-personalities of me that, that are useful or actually, you know, they take up roles in different domains of my life. There's parts of me that come out as a father, or as a husband that I don't bring into my therapy practice. Do I need to bring all parts to all places or do I segment them off? Or is it mm. maybe best to do kind of what I'm doing now and reference their existence, even if I don't act from that place to acknowledge their existence and ways yeah. to give myself a bit of three dimensionality to people who are listening to me. Like no doubt that if you're listening to this podcast, you you probably didn't know about that strategic little manipulative part of me that wants to just you win the poker match, you know? <laughs> so there's, there's the poker match manipulative Matthias. There's the part that, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that got up in a guy's face at a concert. Um, but there's also parts of me that aren't as endearing, you know, like, cause even those stories, like they have, they have a, a bit of playfulness and, and an understandableness. There's, there's moments when, when I'm not so integral and I, and, um, and stories I would be embarrassed if people knew about me, you know? So how do I integrate all those spaces in something like a public persona? What what are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think integration's contextually defined as well. So I think, I don't think it's just about like an overview of your character. I think it's integrating it in the public area or integrating it, for instance, when some big lughead is trying to kind of push your wife around and she's eight months pregnant. Because what motivated your anger there and, and tends to motivate most rage is intimacy. Hmm. It comes from that place. It's an expression. And, and so um, the question to be asked would have been, what would have been the best way to protect your wife? Hmm. You know, and so it was it. It might well have been that the guy was an immediate and invisible threat and, and had to understand that there would be consequences if he continued on or had a lot of that situation already discharged itself and was there another thing to have done that would have been better or more secure for your wife you know it's that piece and then if your anger was to come out a little bit in your practice or in your public voice it might be that it's a distinction between some of the feedback you'll get which is people who are incredibly well-meaning well thought through and really wanting to make it work versus those people who might be envious of your success and actually just want to have a pop and mm. therefore another side and actually for the people to see that, that, that that's quite good as well. Um, or it could be that it is, um, as quite often happens with me in coaching, you can see somebody really being an enemy to themselves, almost mm. a repressive enemy. And there can be enormous warmth and support comes out in your anger towards the part of them which is repressing or hurting them or doing what it's doing yeah 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 and so it's i think it's very it's environmentally specific in terms of how you integrate at different times i guess all i'm looking for though is how do you make sure that you have as much freedom as possible away 
from what you think is a generalized, idealized ego image of who you're meant to be, hmm. so that you're more and more freed up to bring truth rather than adaptive comments to get approval or popularity. Right, it's right. To kind of stretch some of that out. Wow, that's really helpful. I think this is um, this has been something on the front of my mind, even on a lot of political fronts. Um, it's it's no, you know, this is preaching to the choir almost literally. But anyone who follows my work knows I I comment almost zero on anything political that happens like in the public arena. Um, yeah. On either side, it's not like I I talk about left things or right things or, um, you know, certain candidates or positions more than others. I I. I give the equal treatment of zero commentary on political means. I, I don't feel like that's really the focus of my page and, and, and really I don't see my page as Matthias's opinions about everything. I, I see it as Matthias's, you know, thoughts and opinions around stuff that he's put a lot of time and effort and work into trying to gain some mastery over, you know, namely therapeutic content and the psychology of healing from trauma or working through couples work or whatever it is. Like it's a very yeah. topical presence you know and so i've and i've gotten that that's probably a point a conviction i've gotten the most pushback from people who know me well it's like why don't you ever comment on on anything that's going on in in the world and and there's a so there's a part of me that that feels that conviction to just be to stick to my expertise and that's actually what's most helpful and then there's a part of me that feels like i'm doing something disingenuous by not commenting on things because of course i have opinions like anyone else but um and then there's a part of me that really fears the controversy or the rejection or the um, the scuff that will come no matter what I say, no matter what position I take on anything, you know. So um, I don't know. And then that's that's that's, again, what kind of lends me to say, like, OK, maybe there's parts of me that at least for this season for right now that I that I hold in the reserves and yeah. not not rigidly saying, oh, okay, I'm never going to, for the entirety of my career, ever, you know, move into a social topic, but, um, but, uh, but at least for the time being, kind of having some restraint until I feel a conviction otherwise. I don't know, that, that might be adjacent to what you're describing, not really on the nose of it, but what, what comes up to you, for you there? Yeah, part. I think that's, I think it's smart thinking in the sense of, I think it's okay for to have a public voice and to have a private voice. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay to have a, because I think the minute you move into the political world, you're moving into the world of positionality. Yeah. And you and I both know that many of the times we are working with people, we're trying to pull them off particular positions they've taken in their lives that are no longer serving them. Mm. And, and so we're almost trying to move away from that kind of strong opinion, belief, stand, positionality, because very often what has formed a crust around those beliefs is somehow damaging or hurtful to the individual in terms yeah. of what it's costing them. 100%. Life is far less differentiated like that. Life is much more chaotic. It's much more paradoxical. You know, quite often the opposite of a surface truth is a lie, but the opposite of a foundational truth is often another truth. You know, you get these two things, you know, grace and justice coming together. You know, you get these things that hold our world together. And so the minute we take a position and we collapse that, we move away from what is like real life. 
And so you'll, you, there's probably going to be a reticence in you to take any form of really strong public position because anytime you do, you'll probably get a backlash from it from really relevant, truth-seeking, kind individuals yeah. who have invested in the paradoxical position on it and they want to make sure that that's coming into the picture too. Mm. And so I, I think you're onto something. I think you listen to your instinct there absolutely Matthias and, and and just have less and less positions and increasingly just have the core one which is what is the conversation that leads to healing in this mm -hmm. particular circumstance oh yeah that resonates so strongly and I think that the natural rebuttal to that is like well that's that's a position of cowardice to not take a position and it's a position of privilege to get to stand in the ambiguity and it's um and and I think I've I've heard those accusations lobbed at me pretty frequently. And and my my rebuttal even to kind of go along with what you're saying because I align with that. It's it's not like I don't address it. It it's like I address it on a on a smaller system. Like take something like racism for example. Like so much of my work is about the contempt and the boundaries that you hold with people. It's like and and I talk about that on smaller systems. I talk about it with the contempt you have in your heart towards your mom. Or, or the, the the way you've been misunderstood by your father, the systems and and the habits and the routines and the generational trauma that you've experienced in your own family, all of those themes have relevant tie-ins to something like the evil of racism. Um, can I can I just come back to something that you said there, just yeah. kind of as and uh, if I can slip into mentor role for a minute. Sure. Um. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's a position of cowardice to avoid taking a position and it's a position of privilege to be allowed to do so? Do you, do you believe that? I mean, I hear that you've had the accusation, but have you interjected that? Have you taken that on board? Not the second one. I don't, I don't believe that it's a position of privilege to not take a position on something. I, I recognize the, I guess um, that's my position on that. <laughs> yeah. Funny. yeah. Yeah, my position on uh, that accusation of the privilege of position is, um, I don't. It, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the first one, I think there's there's a part of me that that holds that fear that that maybe it's because I'm maybe maybe I'm dressing this up in moral language, but really I'm just scared. And um I don't I don't believe that, but there's a part of me that 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 feels that fear, I guess is what I'm saying. I And so therefore, therefore, would the most fearful thing to do be to submit to it and therefore start taking positions or would the most courageous thing to do would be to continue with your own um conviction and still get attacked and still get those things coming in but stand it's like i'm going to stand because i actually think my public voice is best when it settles on what is best in this circumstance for the healing for the individuals that I'm talking about, as opposed to it's cowardice for me to not take positions on public issues if I have a public platform. Because my guess is mm. that you then become, if fear starts to then move you towards taking positions because you're fearful of appearing fearful, then you could become quite subject to ah. lobbying to people with their own unique political position they could dress up in all sorts of clever ways to get wow. you to take a stand and to make those positions I, I would i would trust your heart here and trust your own intelligence in this 
and sometimes you have to stand and sometimes you have to take it on the chin and appear weak. I think of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela made some very strong public declarations, but when he came out of prison, he lost many of his followers because he refused to go into conflict straight away with the regime at the time. He tried to negotiate, he tried to make things happen. But when I was consulting in South Africa, I met many of his followers and some who had walked away and some who had remained. Mm. And the ones who had walked away were really strongly advocating that he should take positions much more strongly on some of the stand that they were following him for. And then he wouldn't because he felt there was a better way. He felt you could achieve more if you just built the bridges and if there was dialogue and if there was conversations and talk. And so I, I, I wonder if, I, I get that there's fear present in it, but I wonder if the fear isn't a signal that you should therefore be taking more positions that other people are urging you to do, but actually the fear is, no, I don't want to do that. And that means I'm going to get a bit of flack for that. And that's where the fear lies. And I just need to be with that. Wow. Yeah, that feels right. It is. It's a, uh, it's ironic that the fear of the rejection for not taking positions then motivates me to consider just taking the positions so that I don't appear fearful, although that is out of a place of fear. Yeah. Huh. I didn't see that. I, I really feel there's, there's been this um, conviction like like deep in the soul of me like like I, I don't know how to describe this but it's like deep in the foundations it's like that when you come at someone with accusations you arouse um, resistance and you encourage misunderstanding yeah. and if we cannot communicate then the only option if you cannot communicate is to either exile and get far away from each other or resort to violence those are the two, those are the, those are the options. It's like we either you and I negotiate, we, we come to a common agreement of how to understand or how to act around something or how to act towards each other, or we, we just get as far away from each other as we can, or we become violent towards each other and force the other through duress or submission. And it's like, I, I when I look at the most pragmatic way to encourage the most unity, the most love, the most understanding, the most freedom, whatever, it's through genuinely listening and trying to take in the perspective in the world of the other person. Knowing that when I reduce their worldview down to a position point and then offer the counter position points that I'm missing something, I'm turning something three-dimensional into something two-dimensional. And then I'm, and even pragmatically, I'm just increasing resistance. And it's not, it's not always that creating resistance is always wrong. So there's a layer of sophistication there because like I think about Jesus, for example, there was times he created resistance. There was times that he lobbed accusations like at the Pharisees or something. Like there was moments he became accusational, but it had the same functional effect of the thing that I'm talking about. It created resistance. There was never a time that Jesus was like accusational and then it led to someone like really just softening their heart and being like, oh, okay, that's fine. Maybe with the accession of like Peter, like saying something like, you know, get behind me, Satan. Like when there was rapport and trust, that accusation could have a different effect. But when it was on the surface, when there was an adversarial relationship, the accusation only increased the resistance. And I think that was part of, I think Jesus knew that and did that purposefully. But I guess then what, to bring that back, of like when I think of the role of resistance, I'm just like, if I genuinely want to have a persuasive, positive effect on people, 
my, my position has always been look at the thing underneath the thing. So when I'm looking at, you know, something like abortion or something like, you know, um, I don't know, uh, racism or whatever, whatever political, you know, kind of policy front that people are debating. I'm like, what's the dynamic underneath that? That's at the heart of all of it. And I'm like, well, there's, there's contempt. Like I was saying, there's contempt and there's, there's insecurity and there's resentment and there's pain and there's my refusal to acknowledge someone else's pain because I, I, I need, I need things to be predictable and in my own order. And, and like everything that I talk about is about that relationship between contempt and forgiveness and trauma and what we do to protect our own wounds, how we externalize that protection and actually manipulate other people and, and force other people into submission, how we can come after other people and the way that we come after ourselves and our own self-criticism and our own self-contempt, the ways that we look in the mirror and berate ourselves so that we'll lose more weight, that we'll berate ourselves so that we'll be different, look different, you know, perform better. And I'm like, those strains of the soul is what's animating everything on the policy front. And I'm like, so I actually think that that I'm going to have a net positive effect by staying on the dimension of the soul, the thing in, uh, animating the underneath and, and talking about your relationship with your spouse and your mom and your kid. Because I think if, if that clicked into place, then we would be more wise and more in tune with the parts of us that we've segmented off, the exiles that we've cast out. And if everyone was brought to the table, then the things like what to do about this policy, how to interact with particular people particular political domains actually clarifies yeah and that that's actually and, and so it, it's not the lack of a position it's the it's the position by which i take the position <laughs> it's it's the place i take the position it's or the intentionality of it yeah 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 it's something like that i just think that well, you know you mentioned jesus there like when he provoked certain situations i wonder if he was really if you like catalyzing resistance or what he was doing was exposing the resistance. Ooh, wow. Okay. Tell me more. Because, about that. Yeah. So, so I remember watching an Oprah Winfrey show right in the middle of this spike of black lives matter. Yeah. And she had um, a group of African-American um, uh, individuals on who were excellent in their own fields and, and they were really smart and I was watching it and I could just feel my blood boiling because of the dismissive way that we're talking about white people or grouping us all together or sure. doing all that stuff. And I was thinking that, you know, this isn't like Oprah to do something quite as unthought through or as, as kind of blunt as this. And I was, I just, there kind of like chewing on it and thinking this is just making me mad. And then I got it and I just, oh, that is so clever so clever they have provoked me into seeing what my resistance to their voice is they have clever what black lives matter did is they weren't reasonable at all they kept coming after it with these and it was quite strategic and quite pronounced and it really made me begin to examine my prejudices it began to examine my privilege but at first it made me mad when I saw it and I kind of sat and I watched it. And I think about really the onset of the human potential movement where it was Fritz Perls with Gestalt or Alan Watt mm -hmm. um, with some of his thinking. These guys would do things that would provoke people, like really go after them. Like some of those trainings were really hostile. But what they were doing is to say, you only really know what you believe by what disturbs you. Like, yeah. you, you 
if we're all just kind of assenting and going along with things and stuff, then, you know, it's basically we might all just be partake, partaking in collective consciousness kind of, you know, hollow togetherness, you know, yeah, 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 yeah it's the thing that we all say. <laughs> and the thing that pre- absolutely provokes us, reveals to us what we truly believe, the, the beliefs that are in the muscle, the positions that we've taken internally. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's absolutely a place like you were saying, where the Jesus example, or I can give countless other really provocative psychotherapists designed to reveal to us what's really going on in us by provoking it. And I think that as a place, and I think that was the genius of Black Lives Matter and certainly its impact on me in terms of why I then started to look again at what went on behind the scenes. It was clever in how it provoked and maddened me. And then it made me look. Now, the difficulty is, is that not everybody's going to take the time to self-examine their reaction. Some people are going to stay stuck in their defense, and we have a whole world that's gridlocked in counter-arguments. Mm. But at some point, people are going to have to learn that it's affecting them negatively. Until you can start to look at what's going on in your own shadow, it's going to continue to be an invisible rudder for your life in a way that takes you in directions you don't want to go. But if you could take somebody's provocation, somebody's insult, somebody's offense, and you're prepared to genuinely look at it. Now, not all of it doesn't mean you roll under. It doesn't mean you let yourself get bullied. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't be allowed. But if something has got you hooked and it didn't hook everybody else, then there's something in it for you to look at that says, I wonder where I've taken a position that isn't useful for me anymore or is no longer reflective of reality. When I got a hold of that, maybe I can move on from it. Mm. It's so good. I um, I, I learned this in large part from you. I, I I used some of your language around it in my in my recent trauma workshop, a free mind. I I broke down the point of shame and the point of aspiration, and and led people through a very similar exercise where it's like, look at what disgusts you, not yeah. just um, not just even in the outside world, but even in yourself. Yeah what about you like just boils your blood <laughs> you know that i can't stay consistent that i can't uh, pay attention to the details that i lose my temper with my kids that I, you know yada 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 it's what are the things that you can't get under control about you that arouse your disgust and embarrassment and then what's the aspiration on the other end of that yeah and then where has that like you're saying you know centered that positionality that's blocking you off from being able to see a completely different domain of existence a completely different domain of perspective and that's uh, something we call the shadow shadow work good old carl jung and and the many others after him that have opened that up sure yeah yeah i'm so thankful um for your intentionality and kindness in my life and i'm so thankful for your um wisdom and the moments that you've been able to take the mirror and and let me see a deeper part of me and help me see it in a way that wasn't covered in its own contempt or shadow but shine a bright light on it and i wouldn't be the man i am right now without you jim i'm so thankful for you that's kind matthias um I appreciate that. And I don't invest in everybody, but I feel like if somebody's got something positive to bring to the world and has got the the talent, the gifting, and if we want to stay within that um, 
religious kind of genre, the anointing for it, which you have, then I'm happy to pour that in because I, I do think that we need to hear what you're bringing in terms of kindness, in terms of deeper understanding, in terms of your way of making psychology um, graspable uh, for people. And so, um, yeah, let me encourage you to just keep pressing on with that. Be kinder to yourself. You will not please everybody. And occasionally you're going to have a backlash from a position that you will take. And right in the middle of that paradox, there's going to be even more gems and gold and jewels for you. But it doesn't mean that either side was wrong. It just means that there was a deeper place to go in the conversation. So mm -hmm. if I could just take away any of your anxiety for that, I would. If I didn't believe that your anxiety was also incredibly useful for you in sending me signals about what to watch out for when you're saying what you're saying. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, I encourage everyone listening to go and get into that niche library, niche.co. Do you want to do you want to spell it? I'm worried I'm going to put the e and the i in the wrong place. N -E -I. Yeah. <laughs> N e i s h. N e i s h. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> N-E-I-S-H dot co dot C-O. Um, yeah. I would, I would personally, I, I, I loved starting with the subpersonality course. That's a good one. I also think the leader's shadow is a powerful course. Um, do you have a recommendation, Jim, of where you, where you put people to start? A nice and intro, a nice intro. And in fact, um, let me just kind of defeat it myself. It's actually available on YouTube somewhere if you want to find it. Is, um, mm -hmm. There's a 10-minute piece on closure. On closure? Yeah, and um, it's on YouTube, and it would be a good introduction to the library without having to pay any money. Yeah. And um, so people can actually see what's going on there first and decide if that's something that they want to see a little bit more of. Great. Well, I'll put a link to that YouTube video in the show notes of this episode, so people can just click on that right away. That's what I'd recommend you do immediately after listening to this, everybody. It's just gold. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Matthias. Lovely to see you.